News Power Hour. Well, it's a warm welcome to you. It's the 13th of September. I'm Alec Hogg, and with me in our virtual studio today, Stuart Lohman, Nigel Swart, and Justin Rowe Roberts. Nice to see you all after a interesting weekend where we were robbed by the Aussies. Uh, I'm sure you'll agree with that, Justin and Stuart. Nigel, I don't know if you actually care whether, uh, whether rugby is won, lost, or drawn, but I guess... Certainly for the boys, it means something big, doesn't it, Stu? Definitely. I think we will keep our referee comments to ourselves, I think, for this radio show. But otherwise, I suppose you can't win them all, as they say. You need to lose one every now and again. We haven't won this for blooming eight years or something, the commentators were telling us. But anyway, it is what it is. Uh, We've certainly won quite a few today on the program. Um, I'll just take you through very briefly what is coming up. We've got the Financial Times of London uh, who are again waving a flag about NASPAS and what's going on in China. Remember, NASPAS's shares, uh, NASPAS in process, their share price is pretty much determined by what goes on at Tencent. And Tencent is one of the companies that's uh, in the crosshairs of President Xi. They have, as you'll hear from the FT report now, the Chinese government has effectively nationalized Alipay. It's it's an extraordinary uh, step, which anywhere in the Western world you would uh, it would not be contemplated. I mean, a rash of lawsuits, but that's what's happened there. They've said Alipay, half of your company now has to be owned by the government, just like that. Uh, I spoke to David Shapiro a little earlier today, and uh, we'll get his thoughts on that and other issues. He reckons that uh, the the running is being made at the moment by Pit Fulun's favorite shares, which is interesting. David and Pit will be at our next investment conference, which is in March next year. If you want to come along to it, you better book early. And then a real turnaround for the books, uh, Jason McCormick uh, from McCormick Properties, investing 230 million rand into a new shopping center in Mamalodi, where two shopping centers were burned down just two months ago. What the heck is going on? Uh, We'll find out from Jason later. We then have the latest on the RAND from our partners at Treasury One and close off today's show with a staggering story. 18 months of investigations later between the University of Bath, the Institute of Investigative Journalism, and the BBC has emerged that BAT, British American Tobacco, uh, one of the top stocks on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, has been bribing its way to contracts. Uh, Tonight, that is going to be um, released in the UK on their Panorama program. It's their version of carte blanche, but um, probably exponential times 10. Uh, Panorama is the big investigative uh, program in the UK, and that's the, the story tonight. We did manage to talk earlier uh, with Victoria Hollingsworth, who is who headed the whole investigative team. And, of course, one of the guys that they touched on is Johan van Lochrenberg. So not good news for shareholders of BAT. But then again, big companies tend to get away with murder, uh, not figuratively, not literally, rather figuratively, and in this case, perhaps once again. We know what people are going to be reading tomorrow, Stu, but uh, what have the business community been accessing on the site today? Favorite columnist from Brenthurst, Magnus Haystack, put together another piece looking at offshore investing, Alec. He compared his local Lenny, as he calls him, and his offshore Otto. Justin put it together, but I think it was a 30 million rand 
gap between the two or somewhere around that if you invested wisely offshore compared to locally? Justin, 30 million rand of what? No, it was a great piece. So 10 years ago, local Lenny and offshore Otto, two different people, they both invested 10 million rand. One invested them into South Africa, a diversified basket of property, equities, and cash, whereas Offshore Otto invested offshore into a diversified basket of property, equities, and cash. Local Lenny has delivered 19.3 million 10 years later, that's today, and Offshore Otto has 43.3 million to his name. Hence the big difference between the two. Wow. Okay, Stu, we know Magnus is popular and certainly he does focus on the issues that, uh, or the burning issues of that moment. What else is the Biz News community reading on biznews.com? Justin also picked up on a speech in Parliament from the Democratic Alliance's Dr. Michael Carter and looking at the Employment Equity Amendment Bill. Um, He calls it a job destroyer, pretty much. Uh, That's doing quite nicely on the site, Alec. And then Our friends from Panda put together an interesting piece around mandatory vaccination, obviously saying there's no rational sort of decision behind it. And those wrap up the top three on .com. Nadia, what are the community watching on Biz News TV on YouTube? So the top video over the weekend was actually Thursday's flash briefing, which covered Correctional Services Commissioner Arthur Fraser's admission that he had let Zuma go against the Medical Parole Board's actual decision. Another video that's done really well is the summary of the interview with David Shapiro in which mandatory vaccination was discussed and he said that surely it must pose a constitutional issue. And the third video is was posted today on enforced vaccination. It's the summary of my interview with Dr. Duncan Carmichael in which he says that the medical fraternity, the public's trust will be eroded in them and that if enforced vaccination does happen, what we lose is open debate and discussion. And you've got a biggie coming from the Biz News Conference. Can you give us a sneak insight into that video? I'm going to be working on the uh, presentation that Rob Hersoff did, which was very frank, very, yeah, just, he speaks his mind. Uh, and that'll be available, I'd say, in the next two days. But it's really something to look forward to. A street-fighting billionaire. You don't find them around very often, do you? No, not very often. (laughs) And on the podcasting front, Stu? Um, Alec, an interview done by Linda von Tilburg with Connie Mulder from Solidarity, um, looking at the overburdened South African taxpayer and ways to try and sort of deal with that. The great Steinhoff debate, as we called it, uh, between Piet Fulyun and Bernard Mostat from Tacky Town. And then the Potkoy from last week, uh, done from by Shal Boerter with Young Mainkis from Denka Capital on combined motor holdings. Those are the top three podcasts. Potkoy, um, that betekent alle praat in Afrikaans, nee. Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> I'm I sure, like sure, sure Nadia will have something to say about my English accent. <laughs> <laughs> I usually do. <laughs> I'm the one from the KZN, you know. It's uh, we the guys who shouldn't actually know how to speak Afrikaans. But then again, we surprise people from time to time. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Okay, Nadja, there's your cue to bring us up to date with the news headlines. An unsigned affidavit from ANC employees alleged that the party's leaders made deductions from employee salaries for UIF and PEYE, but did not give this money to the intended authorities. 
The affidavit was originally intended to be the basis for employees to charge party leadership with fraud, corruption and theft, which ultimately was not followed through. The party allegedly did the same with deductions meant for medical aid and provident funds. The ANC is reportedly sitting with 200 million million rand debt, owing SARS 100 million and unable to pay employees for the last three months. South Africa has approved a Pfizer's vaccine for use for children over the age of 12, a boost to the country's immunization program. The move follows a review of updated safety and efficacy information and doesn't translate into a procurement decision, the South African Health Products Regulatory Authority said on Sunday. Regulators approved the vaccine developed by Pfizer and BioNTech for local use in adults in March. Around 12% of the nation has been fully vaccinated with a country of about 60 million people now bracing for a fourth wave of infections expected to hit in early December. The approval comes after Sinovac Biotech said a COVID-19 vaccine trial in infants, children and adolescents would take place in South Africa as part of a global study. And businesses continue to weigh up mandatory vaccination, with groups like Discovery and Sunlum having moved to make COVID vaccination mandatory for employees and people entering their premises. Other companies like Momentum have opted away from this policy. However, protocols and changes are in place to deal with the unvaccinated for those who refuse to get the jab, such as shifting jobs around or putting client-facing unvaccinated workers in the back office. Whether vaccination is mandatory or not, workers who refuse to vaccinate will face some consequences. Justin Rowe Roberts, bring us up to date with the markets today, please. The JSE All Share Index was up at 64,600. In the currency markets, the rand was largely flat against all the major currencies to 14 rand 16 cents to the dollar, 19 rand 59 to the pound, and 16 rand 69 cents to the euro. Gold is lower at $1,787 an ounce. A Kruger Rand will cost you around 26,500 Rand. Brent crude is up at $74.10 a barrel, and Bitcoin is steady, trading around the 630,000 Rand levels. In the financial news, investment holding company Remgro released an upbeat trading statement indicating headline earnings are likely to increase by around 70% to between 4 Rand 94 cents and 5 Rand 24 cents per share. The investment holding company is pivoting from financial services into technology and is looking to benefit from the fundamental shifts in the workplace, which have been tailwinds for many of the high-flying technology counters around the world. The share was flat on the local bars. Leading food, food services franchiser Famous Brands also released a positive trading update, with revenue and earnings set to soar past 2020's low base. Food and hospitality have been among the hardest-hit industries due to the coronavirus, and ensuing lockdowns. However, famous brands have signaled that a return to normal trading conditions is taking place faster than expected. Its signature brands, which include the likes of Steers, Debonairs, and Fisherways, are well known by the South African consumer and are well positioned to benefit from any uptick in demand. The share was also flat on the JSE today. Yeah, not just famous brands. I think that there is a whole industry that is uh, relieved at the changes that were uh, announced last night by Soroma Poza. Uh, effective today, Justin? They come into. Has it helped? Has it helped famous brands? Were they helped by that uh, trading update? Nothing really on the JSC. As I said, it's flat today, Alec, but um, you'd think that this is going to be a tailwind for the whole industry. Let's hope that people get out there, they go to restaurants and they support their local hospitality brands. This market report was made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. 
Today is Monday, September 13th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Voters in Norway are headed to the polls today, and climate is top of mind. We've got the latest news about Beijing's big tech crackdown. Meanwhile, Ireland's data privacy watchdog is under fire for going too easy on big tech. Plus, Silicon Valley is famous for venture capitalists backing innovation tech startups. Now another kind of financier is elbowing in. You get the sense that hedge funds have moved in a sort of decisive way into this market, and they're here to stay for some time. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. In Norway, voters head to the polls today for national elections, and climate is taking center stage. This is a country where oil has long been central to the economy. But a dire report about the rate of climate change just out from the United Nations has fueled support in Norway for more environmentally friendly policies. The FT's Richard Milne has more. Climate has lurked in the background in Norwegian politics for a long time. But I think it's fair to say that this year's elections, uh, it was hard to say what they were about really uh, up until this report. But this report has sort of really given a, a vitamin boost to environmentalists, not least the Green Party, which, as you imagine, is is very vocal on this. Uh, their membership grew by a third um, in, in just a couple of weeks. But also there are uh, some smaller parties on both the left and right that have picked up support. And it really has become what several uh, leading politicians said to me, the, the climate election. Richard, how dependent is Norway on its oil industry right now? And, and are there plans to scale it back? It's the biggest industry in Norway. It's of declining importance um, in terms of the number of jobs is going down, but it's still the biggest industry. It's still very important. It's something that it's it's hard to scale back. Actually, Norway's oil production, which had been pretty consistently declining from sort of 2000 onwards, has actually risen in the last couple of years. How divided are voters on the issue of climate and oil? Is it top of mind? Yeah, this is a divisive issue. More Norwegians favor keep on going with the oil industry. This is, after all, what's made them rich. But there's an increasing number, particularly among the young, who are very environmentally focused. Um, and so this becomes a bit of a clash. But you even see it in Stavanger, which is the oil capital. It's like the Houston of Norway. And, you know, the mayor has said, you know, she doesn't call her town the oil capital deliberately. Uh, this is a... Something where I think some Norwegians are thinking about, you know, how history is going to view them of having got rich on, on oil and, and what that means. Richard Milne is the FT's Nordic and Baltic bureau chief. Thank you, Richard. Yeah, thanks a lot. Chinese officials are continuing to restructure Jack Ma's financial services conglomerate, Ant Group. The FT has learned that Beijing wants Ant to break up its financial super app called Alipay. This app has more than a billion users. Regulators want a separate app for the company's lending business. Ant will also turn over user data to a new credit scoring joint venture. And this joint venture will be partly owned by the state, according to FT sources. One of those sources said that Beijing sees big tech's monopoly power coming from their control of data, and it wants to end that.
An Irish nonprofit says its country's data protection watchdog is giving U.S. big tech companies a free pass. Google, Facebook, Apple, and other American tech giants all have their European headquarters in Dublin. That means Ireland's data protection watchdog is the lead regulator when it comes to enforcing EU law on them. But the Irish Council for Civil Liberties did an analysis and found that almost all privacy abuse complaints filed against these companies remain unresolved. Compare that to Spain, which has a smaller budget for data protection than Ireland, but it's more active. Other EU countries have criticized Ireland's reluctance to police big tech. Ireland's Data Protection Commission did not respond to the FT's request for comment. Silicon Valley is that legendary pocket of innovation in Northern California. It's where entrepreneurs meet with venture capitalists and turn their ideas into billion-dollar technology empires. But in recent years, hedge funds have been muscling into Silicon Valley. This year, they've done nearly 800 deals, according to a report from Goldman Sachs that already beats last year's record. To talk more about this, I'm joined by the FT's hedge funds correspondent, Lawrence Fletcher. Lawrence, first of all, Money is money. Why does it matter that startups are backed by hedge funds or or venture capitalists? What's the difference here? It's a good question, actually, Mark. I mean, often private equity or venture capital and hedge funds are sort of lumped together as being almost the same thing. But in reality, they're actually quite different types of investors. Private equity or venture capital, they tend to lock up investors' money for quite a long time. And as the name suggests, they invest in private companies. They don't tend to turn over their portfolios very often. Hedge funds, in contrast, tend to be focused on public markets, more liquid assets, and that sort of thing. And their investors can get access to their money far more readily, usually on a monthly, maybe quarterly basis as well. So therefore, hedge funds have historically tended to stay in more liquid uh, assets, more public markets. Generally, the two have stayed on their own turf, but that's starting to change. So why is this happening? Why are hedge funds getting interested in Silicon Valley? Yeah, it's, it's, it's been a really interesting past decade, actually. I mean, before the global financial crisis was sort of the golden age of hedge funds, but this last decade has not been a great time for hedge funds, to be honest. They've struggled um, in the public markets. They trade because uh, central bank quantitative easing, which has suppressed volatility, that's made a lot of their clever trades sort of not look very clever when compared with cheap, passive uh, tracker funds, actually. In contrast, private equity have had a fantastic time. As public markets have soared, so have private markets as well. And their returns have, according to Goldman Sachs, been roughly double on average uh, annually over the uh, the past decade. So basically, the hedge funds have been enviously eyeing their private equity rivals and thinking, OK, we want some of that. Actually, we can see the higher fees that the private equity funds, venture capital funds are charging. We can see the longer lockups they have on their clients as well. And they want in on the action, essentially. Lawrence Fletcher is the FT's hedge funds correspondent. Thank you, Lawrence. Thanks, Mark. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. David Shapiro has had time to settle back in South Africa after his sojourn in New York. And I'm delighted, David, that you've agreed to uh, help Pitfull Yun present an investment masterclass at the March Business Investment Conference. Ma, and you're going to be getting, uh, I don't know if we're going to have enough seats for the number of people who are going to want to come and listen to you guys. Yep. 
Pitt's well-versed, you know, he's well-educated, he knows his arguments, you know, I have to wing them and make them up as I go. Because, <laughs> <laughs> he said to me, I, 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 I said to Pitt, are you happy for David uh, to present the masterclass, you know, Pitt and then you? Um, he said, yes, because we have very different views on how to invest. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, he he thinks he thinks sharper than I do. Anyway, I'm like not so. Sh- I'm yeah. not so sure. He has a high regard for you as yeah. well, David. But uh, you know, lots going on at the moment. Before yeah. we go into yeah. uh, uh, a, a subject that I'd love to explore with you on cryptocurrencies, what's the news coming out of China? It's almost like people don't want to believe it. Investors in South Africa, man, Naspass has done us so well, and and we. You know, it, this is only a temporary thing, but my goodness, now this morning in the Wall Street Journal is the effective nationalization of Alipay, which only, what, three months ago was going to be the biggest listing ever in the world, uh, or so it appeared, and it didn't go ahead. They pulled the listing two days before it. But it's, it's, it's really moving now in a direction that any investor has got to be taking pause from. Because each day we think that this is the bottom and the next day, an even deeper bottom is formed. So it's, it's been very hard for us to guess. And, and Alec, as you rightly point out, if we look at NASPERS and process on our market, I think they must be down 26% year to date. I, I haven't assessed it because each day it's different. But, I mean, there have been huge losses in, in both of those. Now, understand, they make up a big chunk of the index. And we've shifted towards passive type of investing where you buy the index, you buy ETFs, many of which have got very, very large exposure to process and ISPIS. So, you know, it's, it's, it's hurting the savings uh, of this country. And there's no way out. Now, the market, I looked at it on Friday, and I'm using Friday's numbers. I think at one point the, the all-share index was up about 17 18%. Um, and not too long ago, maybe a month or so, and subsequent to that, we've given back a lot. You know, we've had a slight sell-off in some of the commodities, but to a large extent, this is the China effect um, taking our market down. And I think as we stand at the moment, we're probably up 7 or 8% for the year. And, um, you know, with with something like NASPERS and Process, minus 25, so massive underperformance in that. And Alec, it doesn't look like it's ending. You know, each well, day yeah. something else happens. Something new coming out of something President Key's uh, mindset. But the, I suppose it also illustrates the danger of not diversifying because the JSE is yes. heavily dependent on those two stocks. Yeah. Yes. I, there's no doubt. I've always had the argument um, that although they're not um, dynamic stocks, things like ABN, Bev, Glencore, British American Tobacco – are very, very large companies. Now, South Africa decides, or the stock exchange, whoever decides on the uh, indices, um, looks at what they call uh, the float. In other words, what's the float in South Africa? And I'm saying, hold on a sec. <laughs> you know, In today's world, if I need float, I just have to put an order into London, I'll get float. <laughs> you know what I mean? You must look at the size of the business because we can... We can trade as many shares as we like in Glencore, British American Tobacco, ABN, or any of those other big internationals as well. And I, I've, I've always hoped that they would include that so as to dilute the impact of process and NASPES and then perhaps uh, adjust some of the other shares as well 
David, just to close off with for this week, mm. cryptocurrencies, mm. my view on this is evolving. I, I, I'm feeling more inclined towards the libertarian camp. The mm. big government is not a good thing. Uh, El Salvador, sure, they, they, they haven't had the best debut in, in bringing mm. in crypto for that country. But generally speaking, although it's got lots of obstacles and lots of hurdles, it does appear as though the the crypto it's almost like you know against the man they they it's the it's the small small players against the man and the man being uh, the governments and the fed and people like that but they they do there does seem to be a whole lot more support for the crypto future than Ordinarily, you step step back and think, well, okay, well, the governments are just going to regulate everything and then cryptos are worth nothing. But that doesn't seem to be the case. And I'm wondering if your views on crypto are also I, starting to evolve a little. I've got no my, – my only view on crypto is that if I deal for myself or I deal for clients, you want to ensure that there's a regulated market. That's That to me – I don't go beyond. It's got to be regulated. So I must know that if I buy a coin on whatever exchange, it's going to be delivered, you know. And and people assure me that sometimes with uh, the, um, you know, with the kind of technology that governs these the, the release, that happens. I'm not sure of that yet. So I don't want, you know, I want to be in a market that, you know, remember we had deal stream and we had all these contract for differences, which were nothing more than bucket shops. And, uh People lost a lot of money simply because there was no oversight and regulation. And to me, I will deal in anything if it's a regulated market. And and I must say in your support that this is not going to stop. It's not going to vanish one day. It's only going to get stronger. And uh, it's now, you know, the authorities are always behind in regulation. And for once, let them get ahead. You know, let them put the proper rules in place. That, that you know that people can, if they want to, buy a cryptocurrency, knowing that it's it's secure and they will be taken care of. You know, if anything should be go wrong. The problem, though, is that people are getting really sick and tired of mismanagement of public finances by politicians, mm-hmm. and that means they're looking increasingly for alternatives. Mm-hmm. Well, that mm-hmm. gold is too to uh, 1900s yeah. so crypto is, is more like and i like the the view that pitt brought up as well where he says we don't really know it is high risk but you should not ignore it but don't have more than one or two percent of your portfolio invested there yeah. because who knows where it could go to it'll be interesting uh stafford marcy uh mm. you know stafford right. uh, former uh, head of google here in south africa and i mean a great uh, uh entrepreneur uh, he's also going to be at the Business mm. Investment Conference where he's going to be talking about crypto. And he told me, David, I, 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 I don't want to exaggerate, but probably four years ago, he said invest in crypto. And mm. then it was $12 a Bitcoin. Yeah. You know, now it's, oof, what, 50000 It's a, some people have, and he's always been ahead of the game when it comes to digital. So we've we got to start listening and just opening our minds, I guess. To, to the reasons, the real reasons behind it is not just the criminals, etc., who are making hay, but it's just the, also the ordinary people who are so cutful with the way that the public finances have been mis, misappropriated, not just here, but all over the world. There's a bigger story as well that you're picking on, and, and, and it's something I, – I, I remember UBS. I was at a UBS conference uh, in London, and one of the chaps got up and he said, you know, 
and, and, and I remember the number. He said 85% of our clients, the children of 85% of our clients will not use us. You know, in other words, when the, in other words, and what he was referring to was that you've got a young generation that's growing up that want to do their own thing. They want their own fintech and, and you know, they want, they, they want to do their own investments. They want to do it in their own way. They don't want to be influenced by legacy and uh, our old ideas. And you've got to be part of this wave. You've got to wake up to, to how younger people are thinking. Don't dismiss them. You know, that's why. And if they want to buy crypto, you know, just understand why. You can explain why, ask. But I think, I think that's where we're kind of going wrong. You know, where older people tend to say, you know, I've had the experience. I've been around. I know this. I think you've got to change your attitude. Mm-hmm. I just think about my own industry, the media mm. industry. Mm. Uh, when I was a young journalist, mm. uh, there was only one national, there was one broadcaster. Mm. The SABC owned everything yeah. in South Africa. We yeah. forget this. All the radio stations, mm. all the television stations, they were all owned with the exception from 1985 when they did a deal, the National Party did a deal with, with MNET, uh, with the exception of one station that was a subscription channel. The rest were all SABC owned. And I never ever thought that it would be any different. Look at it today. Yeah. We have the internet. It's a, it's a complete uh, open, open mm. source, if you like, media. You can get it yeah. from anywhere you want to. Mm. And yet you go back, if you'd, if you'd shaped all your thinking according to 1990 mm-hmm. uh, levels, you'd be, you'd be just so out of touch. And maybe, anyway, it's a, it's a story about just opening our minds. But David, as always, good talking with you and uh, look forward to the next time. Okay, let's speak. How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us and the tools that shape our cities and by backing the next generation of business owners that's why south africa banks on business business banks on us standard bank it can be standard bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider t's and c's apply well, I last saw Jason McCormick earlier this month where you gave us an amazing presentation, Jason, at the Business Investment Conference. Uh, we'll have that up on YouTube in due course. But what I was most surprised to see today was an announcement from your company, given what, went ha- what you went through in July with the looting and the burning of many of your shopping centers, that you're actually breaking ground on a new shopping center in Mamalodi. Um, just for background, before we go into the, the Mamalodi Square development, didn't shopping centers get hit in Mamalodi during the looting? Um, yes, indeed. Shopping centers did get hit, um, two that I know of, um, in Mamalodi. So it's not one of those, if that's what you're asking. This is a greenfield fields development in the middle of Mamalodi on Samaya Road, which is the main east-west arterial through, through Mamalodi. It's in the really in the center, in the heart of Mamalodi, um, in a very old established part of Mamalodi. So, yes, it is, <coughs> pardon me, it is in, in Mamalodi, where other malls got hit, yes. Now, the rational mind says, why the heck are you going into a place when it is such high risk, given what happened just two months ago? Well, we were investing in the homelands under apartheid. And had we listened to the rational minds back then, we wouldn't be where we are, where we are today, um, quite simply. So 
maybe the rational mind is irrational because they don't understand our market um, on the one side. But certainly, you know, from our side, when we first conversed on that, I think it was a Thursday after, you know, we were still burning in South Africa. Um, I did mention our intention to to carry on doing what we're doing. Obviously, we won't do them the same way that we've always done them. And, and they're not the only ones who started since then. You know, we've got three new ones underway. Um, and but certainly, yeah, this is this is the only one in KZN or Gauteng uh, that we've started at the moment. So it's the seventy-first development. 71st, I mean, it's, quite, uh, it, it's an extraordinary development. So more than five dozen. You're on the the uh, on the way to a hundred, I suppose. Not too Three far. Three score, into... year and ten. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, but. but uh, Three score year and ten plus one. Uh, plus one. Re- really, the, the the thought would be: Did you not take fright at all from what happened in July, given the the hit that your organisation felt? No, we didn't take fright. Obviously, we had our we had a lot of our thinking rearranged, re you know, re- reordered, um, and. I think you know, the reality is that the need still exists, as I told you at the time, um, for these kind of developments. The, the, the opportunities that these developments do provide um, and the needs that they service remain. Um, so, so, yes, whilst this was literally a, a once in my, certainly in my lifetime event, um, let's hope it, we don't have such an event again. Uh, but if we were to, we will be ready this time. There's no doubt about it. So now certainly from our side, um, you know, as, as you would have seen from the press release, we are co-investors with Putprop. Um, land was owned by them. It was the old Putco bus depot site. Um, and they being co-shareholders, co-investors with ourselves, um, we've discussed the, the, the inherent risks and, and how we sort. And, and you know, they, they're supportive of us, what we're looking to do. Um, certainly the community is supportive of us. Uh, we are in the ground. Um, we haven't had any stoppages on site. We are working closely with the the local communities. We always do. So the yeah, the indications are for now that that we've we've got the support of the community. But you know, as as I've said before, you know, we're certainly not going to go anything go into any of these developments with our eyes shut. Um, and we are obviously we've taken learnings out of what we've just been through. Um, and yeah, we we are carrying on. How will the design be different? The design won't from a from oh, retail design is very scientific um, in terms of what works, what doesn't, um, and I think we've got a design in terms of the mall that works. Um, it is an enclosed mall. It does have very few shops facing out onto the onto the parking lot, which I when when you and I spoke, so you know that was they were obviously hit very badly those open shopping centres, and this just by you know by luck to be honest um, has very few outside facing shops. Obviously we we will protect the, the internal side of the mall a lot with a lot more robust uh, closures um, and obviously um, a lot more effort going on to our perimeter fencing uh, security, our technology that is driving a lot of these security systems, the early warning response systems, and, and all of that. Um, because, you know, I think one of the one of the big learnings from where we were a couple of well, eight weeks ago or so was we we didn't have enough um, response, our own response in in place, um, because we had always assumed that that the the SAPs and, and, and the security services would come riding in on a chariot to save us. Um, what we've sub- subsequently realized is we need to look after ourselves. 
Um, and so from, yeah, from, from that aspect, obviously, there's all these ancillary things that we, that we will look to, to effectively, if it were to happen again, delay the time it takes for them to get in to us so that we can deploy um, the appropriate tactical response in, in time. Um, but, you know, we don't want to get there. We want to work well with our communities. We want to work closely with the communities. They must see that this thing benefits them. They must be employed. Um, and, you know, as, as we've always said, you know, local shareholding, local businesses, keep it local, um, that the locals are benefiting. Um, and so, as I said before, there, there, were, there were more good people than bad in, this, in, in what we've just seen. And so if we can work with the good people to look after um, what we're building, I think that'll be far more, far more effective than than building Fort Knox at our at our perimeter. Pat Prop, Patco buses. Was this an old bus depot? Can you believe it? Uh, yeah, and I kicked myself. I always thought it was a an apartheid state-owned enterprise. You know, they'd been around for for so long, running up and down the Malorca Road to Pretoria, that I'd for for years looked at the Patco bus. Uh, depot site, and I thought, you know, I, I can't go and negotiate this with government. I, I won't look at it until it came out on on uh, RFP, a request for proposals. Um, and yeah, so the closing day was actually the day that just after our listing, we were taking the analysts around. Um, and yeah, so I took the analysts around, which is obviously the most the cleverest property people in in the in in the country or, or that that cover the property property industry. It was about three hours of sleep because. I'd only heard about this thing late, and and yeah, so we scrambled to put this this bid together, and yeah, fortunately we we won the bid to to develop these uh, putt prop sites. There were three that went out full out on tender, um, that and actually two that they only closed on. So it's this one here in Mamalodi, another one in Dobsonville Soweto, which, as I'm sure you will pick up, is directly over the road from the Dobsonville Mall that got hit um, as well. So so we're angels fear to trade, Alec. <laughs> Are you doing Dobsonville as well? Yes, there's, there are a couple of there are a couple of town planning, town town planning issues um, around that. But the the, the market research, the, the latent demand in Dobsonville is, is is massive. So so certainly we are we're planning we almost through all our all, all the all our planning processes and and will be you know probably early next year in the ground with that. Jason, what do the analysts think? Given that Exemplar uh, is listed on the JAC. They think we don't have enough spread. They, they, they think there's not enough free floats to, to cover us, to be honest. Um, and so, yeah, they, it's, it's interesting. You know, they, they love what we do. They love the niche that we're in. Um, but because, you know, we're we, we kind of fledgling um, and we listed in, in the middle of 2018. And we always said, we're gonna, I want a couple of years of, of good results behind us that like, we can show people that we can operate in this space. Um, and then, obviously, after the 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 REITs or the, the collapse of the REITs in in twenty late twenty seventeen twenty eighteen when we when we listed, we went straight into then into COVID um, and then into this. So to be honest, you know, we're still busy trying to you know, manage the portfolio as best we can um, to prove to the analysts that we can do this professionally. We have no doubt that we can do we are doing this professionally. Um, if these black swans just get out get out our way, and then we can roll out the next phase of the phase of the growth plan, um, yeah, well, then we'd be a lot, yeah, we obviously we'll be speaking a lot closer to the analysts um, when there's a kind of an equity event, um, because obviously that's, that's when the analysts are going to come in uh, into play with, with, with placing. So we've got, we've got well in excess of 30 secured uh, developments in our, 
in our pipeline. Um, and you know, planning to roll those out, it's between three and five a year, depending on, the, depending on the size. So currently at the moment, we have got over 150,000 square meters under leasing, um, which is bigger than all of Africa, but um, uh, across a number of different developments. So what's going to stop you from doing that? Uh, if if looting and rioting doesn't stop the McCormicks, what would? Yeah, I don't see anything stopping us at, at the moment. Um, yeah, nothing at, at the moment, other other than uh, other than a health issue or, or, or expropriation without compensation. They start tar- targeting commercial land. Um, you know, I think any property developer would 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 run a mile. Um, if that happens. This currency focus is proudly brought to you by Treasury One, South Africa's leading treasury solutions company that unlocks financial value for your business. With me now is Andre Silias from Treasury One. Thank you very much for your time, Andre. Uh, you're watching Business TV. I'm Bronwyn Nielsen. Andre, let's get a lowdown on the currency. Of course, President Cyril Ramaphosa taking to the podium again last night, removing us to an adjusted level two. Does that have an impact on the currency, given that that is really at the political stage uh, perspective? Unfortunately, I have to say that that has got absolutely no impact on the markets uh, in terms of the rand this morning at all. Uh, I think when we look at that impact, uh, that's something that will come through uh, in economic growth figures. Yes, certainly it spells uh, a positive on that end because uh, more places will be open. Well, not really open, but more places will be able to function in a better way than they have before. Uh, I think uh, the fact that people can be 250 feet people inside now uh, will benefit restaurants, etc., a heck of a lot. Uh, it will benefit the tourism sector a heck of a lot. Uh, and that's certainly needed, and that will be positive. But that's longer term, no direct impact this morning. Last time we chatted, Andre, we were very much looking to the fourth wave and the impact that that would have on the economy, whether there would be another lockdown. That's obviously got to be one of the key scenarios that that still plays uh, at hand when you look at the, the local unit. Yes, certainly it does. Uh, but the positive news that came out of last night's address by Mr. Ramaphosa was the fact that our vaccination program now runs in the order of a million people uh, per week. Now, that's very positive, And we have, uh, if you look at that, uh, then we have some eight to nine weeks, call it 10 weeks, eight, nine, somewhere around there, uh, before the holiday season actually kicks in for December. So that simply tells me that we could get our vaccination program up to uh, the amounts of another 10 million or so. Uh, And if people play together and they really go and gather, then we could most probably get that a little bit higher. Uh, And that will be positive and that could impact on how severe a fourth wave is. We also have to take into account that we're speaking about the fourth wave in December. The more people that's vaccinated, the less impact, and we will only see that impact uh, coming through 
after the holiday season because that's when people return and they've been infected and they will be hospitalized etc then so uh, very easily another 10 to 15 million could possibly be vaccinated before then uh, that's uh, and the local heck. elections also having bearing on obviously potential transmission andre you must have given that some thought that's more of a worry at this point in time because that's a lot closer and we have less time to vaccinate more people. But I do think that the measures that will be put in place uh, will be very, very strict. Uh, the observance of gatherings will be very, very strict, uh, especially on the voting day. Uh, and I think social distancing, you know, that would be a very controlled area. Uh, and, and concentrated in certain places. So I think that will be well controlled uh, and that will help. Uh, it won't be uncontrolled gatherings. The risk of rioting and looting, this was something that was a key concern for you just two weeks ago, is has the risk passed? Do you think that this is now something that you, you are not working into your models and, and that we actually have have moved beyond it? I'm still uh, on alert level there uh, in terms of violence during the elections. I think the situation between political parties uh, and the way, uh, you know, they handle their things, uh, especially from the far left-wing side uh, and even from the far right-wing side, is, is, is dangerous. It's uh, could erupt into chaos. Uh, and if you look at some of the killings that's taken place just over the last week uh, in KwaZulu-Natal, then I'm beginning to wonder whether that might not be politically in, in, inspired already. Uh, so that remains a concern to me. Talk to me about the trading ranges, Andre, that you have for the foreseeable future. We're having some interesting times. Uh, we've got a RAND that wants to strengthen. Uh, it did strengthen a heck of a lot. And that's amidst a period where the dollar had actually uh, also uh, strengthened. Uh, we, you would have expected that the RAND will show some signs of weakening uh, during that strengthening. If we look at the euro, then we've seen that coming down from the 1860, 1870 levels. We're currently trading down uh, below the 118. We're down at the 117.75, uh, with the RAND remaining at the 1420 levels. You know, so... Uh, our cross rates uh, well below 17 against the euro, our pound lying at 963, uh, 1963. So uh, the rand actually very strong at this stage and doing very well. Concerns me a little bit, where's that little elastic band of pulling too far too strong when it's going to bounce back to the 1450, 1460 range, where I'm actually very comfortable with the currency. So trading ranges, 1410, 1470, with the risk at this point in time, rather to the upside uh, if the dollar continues on its strengthening path. But. So you believe the RAND has gotten a little ahead of itself in terms of the strength that we've seen of late? Well, whenever have we seen the RAND behave properly, you know, uh, it's either too weak or too strong. It always pulls a little bit too far in that elastic band and then makes a bit of a correction. So, yes, 
I think it's a little bit too strong. Uh, it's gone a little bit too far and people are a little bit ahead of themselves. So I think rather on the upside, back to the 1460, 1470 levels. You mentioned the euro and, and the dollar. Anything in the international space that you are specifically on alert for? Well, not really. I mean, you know, we've spoken a heck of a lot in the last couple of weeks about the Federal Reserve and the drive that they have to see employment rather than curbing inflation or containing inflation. Uh, they're still on very much the same drive. Uh, it was confirmed last week by the European Central Bank that they're on exactly the same drive. Uh, they both... Uh, in the European side and in the American side, now mentioned that they will start tapering on their quantitative easing a little sooner. Uh, but they're still happy with the inflation levels that's above their targets um, and rather looking at growth and fostering growth uh, and helping the economies return to sustainable growth. So no surprises, and I doubt whether there will be any right up to the end of the year. And then, of course, our own central bank, Governor Lesetjo Khanyaho, giving a, a speech to Stellenbosch on 21 years of inflation targeting. That was well received by economists across the border in South Africa. So his stance firmly in play. We know that inflation targeting is the way forward for our own central bank. Just in terms of interest rates going forward, we will follow suit with the, the rest of the world, Andre. We will follow suit, and uh, Mr. Letsega Kanyahu in his MPC has always been slightly ahead of the curve, uh, but there's no immediate uh, interest rate increases out of the U.S. or out of Europe. Uh, and if you look at our inflation, and we spoke about that two weeks ago, our inflation well contained, uh, our inflation lower than that of the Americas, uh, then there is actually room for the uh, Reserve Bank to come in with a lowering of a 50 or a 75 basis points of interest rates. But I said two weeks ago, they will not do that. I confirm, that's still my standpoint. They will not change. But that would simply mean that they have room to remain at the current levels of interest rates for a little bit longer, uh, still giving a lot of room for the... Uh, people on South African side with the lower interest rate levels, saving, uh, being able to repay their debt, uh, and even if they were to make new debt, make debt at fairly low levels. This currency focus was proudly brought to you by Treasury One, South Africa's leading treasury solutions company that unlocks financial value for your business. Well, South Africa's tobacco industry is going to be very much in the global headlines over the next few weeks and uh, the person who we always turn to when it's anything to do with tobacco here in South Africa is Johan van Lochrenberg, ex-South African Revenue Services. Johan, you've made this, uh, uh, well, apart from the books that you've now written on the subject, uh, how many are you up to now? How many books on on tobacco wars and SARS wars and rogue rogue unit and so on? Yeah, I, I've, I've written four books and I'm busy with uh, my next one. Okay. Is, is this like a full-time employee for you now? Uh, are you focusing whole time on just writing? I wish I could because I do enjoy it, but it doesn't pay the, the bills, Alec, so it's a, it's a part-time thing. But, but also with us today is Victoria Hollingsworth, who's 
been putting together the story on the South African, the craziness that's been going on in the whole tobacco industry. Victoria, did uh, have, have you and Johan had much to, uh, or have you engaged much on the subject? Um, we have. I'm very grateful to Johan, actually. Um, I spoke with him. In fact, I read his book as one of the first things that I read um, when looking at this topic. And so then I, I very quickly realised I needed to speak to him. So I've been speaking to a lot of people from all different parts of the industry. But yes, I have had many a conversation with Johan. has been incredibly helpful on this project that we've been working on. You sound not South African, uh, which clearly you aren't. Just give us a little background on what brought you into this field. Yeah, I work for the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. They're a non-for-profit um, journalism uh, outfit in the UK, but they cover global stories. Um, and I was tasked with looking uh, in this area of tobacco and, um, as I say, started doing some research, read um you know, to try to consume as much as possible. And I was very aware that the uh, BBC Panorama um, story had triggered a big investigation in the UK um, of, uh, about corruption with uh, British American tobacco and allegations of corruption and bribery that, that, went, that went on. Um, and so I started looking at that and then it led me to uncovering what British American Tobacco had been doing um, through their private security company in uh, in South Africa, which obviously has been documented and covered in South Africa. But the interesting thing to me and the Bureau was that this was largely orchestrated from the UK, from headquarters, and that link had never really been brought to the attention, I don't believe, of the UK um, as it should have been. So that was our primary focus, was really tying this back to how uh, how much the UK head office um, were aware of what was going on in South Africa. So, yeah, that's where we began looking. Has it surprised you as well, Johan, that the global community, given that BAT is such a huge uh, market cap stock, both in London and in South Africa, that they haven't paid more attention? Well, Alec, I, I mean, I've been I've been blowing the whistle for over half a decade um, to anybody that would uh, take the time to listen. So when this opportunity came along for me to um, to speak with Victoria, I you know I agreed to do so um, because I think uh, you know um, as the world is moving on, and we've certainly seen it in South Africa. Um, during the state capture period, there seems to be different rules for big companies worldwide to um, us normal uh, individuals. So, no, it doesn't surprise me. Um, it surprised me that it's taken so long. Yeah. What do you think the impact of this could be? Because we quite often see that big companies do get themselves into trouble and then there's lots of coverage around it. But the share price just keeps steaming along, going higher. Profits continue to grow. Uh, Victoria, what are you hoping can be achieved by exposing uh, everything that British American Tobacco was up to and to great personal costs uh, uh, of of Johan himself? Um, well, I think as journalists, all we can do is to put it out there. 
and to bring it to people's attention. And that has incredible power, you know, um, and we really, really hope that a lot of people will listen to our podcast and follow and learn what happened there. The disappointment, I, I, I want to say disappointment, it's not the disappointment. My hope, you say, what's my hope, is that the serious fraud office in the UK um, did uh, close their investigation into British American tobacco earlier this year. And it felt like that was a bit of a blow to our investigation. We'd been working on it for quite a long time. And then suddenly this press release lands and says, nothing to see here, no evidence, um, we're, we're no longer investigating British American tobacco. And so for a moment, I felt oh gosh, you know, how come they've, does that mean that we've got all of this wrong? But, you know, then I came to my senses and, and it became even more important that we follow through with this investigation because I feel and I know that the SFO in the UK did not speak to very key witnesses and sources and um, that significant evidence was not shared with them. So therefore our job became really really important to highlight this so my hope is you know as a journalist we put it out there we hope people engage with it but ultimately you want change you want people to be held accountable and um and i hope that the sfo will will re relook at this that was that's that's my ultimate hope obviously with a uh, with a long investigation like this there's a process of sharing with the public uh, tonight, uh, Monday night, the 13th of September is a big night for you guys. <laughs> yes, it is. I just want to pick up on a, a previous point, actually, um, to say that um, BAT didn't actually go in. They didn't talk to us about this particular bribe, the bribe donation, uh, whatever you want to call it. Um, they didn't talk to they didn't give us a comment on that. So they, they talked about other payments that had been made. Um, through the company FSS, but not specifically about this three hundred to five hundred thousand um, US dollars one. So I just want to make that clear. Um, but yes, so our podcast, so the BBC Panorama airs this evening. As you may know, it's our uh, the the UK sort of flagship current affairs investigative program. And again, it was the same platform that got the first SFO investigation opened off the back of uh, their former whistleblower Paul Hopkins. So that airs this evening. So there's, there's very exciting that's finally a long, long time in, in, in the making. And, uh, and our podcast series, uh, which is an eight part series, which will be released weekly. It's called Smokescreen. And that's available wherever people get their podcasts from. And yeah, so that will tell the story in a slightly different, more nuanced perspective. So an eight part series that's going to be uh, unpacking. Uh, the the innards of what went on here, primarily in Southern Africa. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's it's. But as I say, really, we're very interested in the link back to the UK throughout all of this. Um, so yeah, how how BAT operated in South Africa, but at the behest of um, HQ. And does Johan feature much? He does, and um, he's been very generous with his time. And um, I will be curious to hear what Johan thinks about it. But yes, he is featured in the podcast. 
Johan, maybe you can tell us that and uh, perhaps you could twist Victoria's arm to start looking at McKinsey and KPMG and uh, some of the other <laughs> estate capture fiends that have taken so much out of South Africa's national treasury. I don't know, Alec. Um, you know, from the word go, when I was contacted by Victoria and, and the BBC people, um, I, I made it very clear and I think we understood it um, between ourselves that since I was a potential witness and somebody um, providing information to the extent that I was law lawfully able to do so, I did not participate in um, anything else. So I'm as keen to hear the podcast and, and watch the panorama show as everybody else. Um, and I should say I must compliment um, the entire team on their fact-checking. It was really extraordinary <laughs> and I think our, our law enforcement agencies and perhaps the SFO can benefit from perhaps spending some time with that fact-checking team. Well, thanks for being with us today, this Monday, the 13th of September. Until same time, same place tomorrow. Cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.